Well, let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. 24. I don't know why I've got 25. I keep saying 25. I'm not in a hurry to get through it, obviously. You know that. Today's a milestone day, 150 sermons in Matthew, and we're not done with chapter 24 yet. So, Wouldn't it be awesome to be preaching on the second coming and not be able to finish it? And then on the way up, say, okay, so I was wrong about that, obviously. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, the authority of it, the power of it, the grace of it. We thank you that your word is sufficient. We believe sola scriptura. We believe that your word is what we need. It, it's all we need for life and godliness. In terms of the content, your spirit empowers life and godliness. And Lord, we believe tota scriptura. We believe all of scripture is scripture. We don't separate old and new. And Lord, we don't unhitch from anything. We look to your whole word today. And so bless us as we come. Watch over my mouth and my heart. And grant all of us ears to hear, hearts to believe. For your glory and for our good, in your name I pray, amen. Well, we've been in, in Matthew 24 for a few weeks now. Matthew 24 and 25 are called the Olivet Discourse. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus' disciples ask him what the signs will be of his coming and of the end of the age. Just as a reminder to you, as we look at Matthew 24, it is Wednesday afternoon of Passion Week. Within 48 hours or so, Jesus will have died on the cross. So we're very late in the ministry of Jesus. The next night, Thursday night, he'll celebrate the Lord's Supper with his disciples. This is the last uh, second to the last major teaching he gave his disciples. He also spoke to them that night in what's called the Upper Room Discourse. So Matthew 24 and 25 has to do with the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. We've seen in the, the previous verses that uh, the end of the age and his second coming will be preceded by a great tribulation. He describes it in verse 22 in saying, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been left. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The suffering of the tribulation period is going to have two sources. The most obvious source to us is the, uh, the judgment of God being poured out. If you'd like to read Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18 at some point, you'll see that there are three cycles of judgment. There are three, uh, seven seals, seven bowls, and seven trumpets. I believe that those are poured out systematically against the world and the powers of the world and, and all of that as he dismantles all of it and brings judgment to every bit of it. Uh, the second source of suffering during the tribulation is not one that we often think about. Um, it is the suffering brought about by the Antichrist against the people of God. Now I'm convinced from scripture that the church will be removed before that in, in what 
Uh, Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4 as the catching away. The word rapture comes from the, the Latin word for that. Whether or not we're here, the Lord's attention during those seven years is going to be the nation Israel. We talked about that at, at some length last week. 144,000 Jews will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period, and the nation itself, when Jesus actually comes back, will be redeemed and restored. All the Jews alive at that time will see him whom they have pierced. They will mourn him, and they will believe. And it will be the greatest revival, the greatest redemption in human history. Now, as I said, I, I believe that the church will be gone during those events, but still Jesus' words are important to us today. We're not living in the tribulation period, but we are living in a time of tribulation. It's a time of chaos. The devil has filled our world with false Christs and with false prophets. We have the same need as Jesus' disciples of needing to know how to protect ourselves and how to know what's true and how to measure those claims. So let's read verses 23 to 28 and then we will dive in. Jesus says, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Therefore, if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I promise you that when you go home today, you'll know what verse 28 means. It's a weird verse, but I promise you'll understand it. So to begin with, we have Satan's battle plan. Verses 23 and 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. The final phrase tells us why he's doing this. He's trying to deceive, if possible, the elect. He is trying to take the life away from those whom God has chosen. The entire world has always been divided into two different groups. There have always been uh, the elect and the reprobate, God's people and those who are not God's people. The elect are not special. The elect are not better. They're simply those that the Lord has chosen for himself. The reprobate are not especially bad. They're simply those that the Lord leaves to their own nature and the judgment to come. Satan already dominates the elect. He already owns them. He already rules them. Jesus says in John twelve thirty one that he is the ruler of this world. John writes in 1 John 5 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. By the way, these references are on the note sheet. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Satan is the ruler of the power of the air. He is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the devil has no need of deceiving the world. He owns them. He dominates them now. But the elect have been granted repentance by God. 
They've escaped the snare of the devil. 2 Timothy 2.25 and 26 says, Colossians 1.13 and 14 says that the Father has rescued us from the authority of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and that by grace and through faith. So the devil thought he owned the whole mass of humanity, and from the very beginning, God has been choosing and rescuing. And he takes those people out of Satan's clutches. And they escape, not because they're better, not because they're worthy, but because of the mercy of God. So he set his sights especially on the end, especially in these last days, on deceiving the elect. That's true today. And the effect is going to be multiplied in the great tribulation. He has three deceptions Jesus tells us about. The first is false Christs, false saviors. Now, if you think about human history and religion, before Jesus, the religions of the world were systems. Hinduism and Buddhism would be two really good examples of that. The focus is not on any particular individual. It's on the system. But when Jesus comes and the Father reveals his purposes, that God the Son took on human flesh and became the Son of God, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that the world would worship Jesus and the focus of the world would be on him, the focus of the saved, that Jesus would eventually return as both Savior and Judge, and everything focuses on him, Satan began counterfeiting false Christs, false saviors. Muhammad would be a false savior. Joseph Smith would be a false savior. The second deception is to send out false prophets. False prophets deliver lying messages in an attempt to obscure the truth. The devil is not interested in providing a single alternative to biblical faith. He provides billions of alternatives to biblical faith. His point is not to pull you away from Christ and to steer you to one false leader. His point is simply to pull you away from Christ. And so if, with, without being disrespectful to the Lord at all, it's as though the spiritual climate is, is this game of spiritual game of where's Waldo we don't go preach the gospel in a pure environment we don't preach the gospel to people who have heard nothing who have no ideas who have heard no lies who have heard no deception we preach the gospel to people who live in the middle of a, a sandstorm of deception One deception takes them to the right, one takes them to the left, one takes them down, one takes them up, one is blue, one is red. They wildly contradict each other. doesn't matter. The devil's attempt, his desire is to obscure, not to make anything clear. The third deception is going to be great signs and wonders. Now, there are fakes and frauds all over the place in our time, you can see them on TBN. You can see them on other cable networks and on, on the Internet. They pretend to work miracles, but they don't. They're fakes. All of them are fakes. Mom came over for dinner last night, and we were talking about the earthquake in Morocco. We saw a video taken from a village close to the epicenter where there's virtually no access. And it's a beautiful video. It's clear, 
the, the quality is, is incredible. The sound quality is incredible. The colors are brilliant. This is in the middle of nowhere where you'd have to take a helicopter to get in, and yet you can have this perfect image of what's going on. Where are the videos of the healings? There are none. There are none. An apologist several years ago, a number of years ago now, uh, pressured the, the Benny Hinn group for evidence. Give us medical evidence of healings. They, they asked for this for quite a long time. And finally, uh, Benny Hinn's ministry gave them three cases, three. And when they investigated those people, none of them had been healed. So there's fakes and frauds all over the place. But during the Great Tribulation, God is going to empower Satan or permit Satan to empower actual miracles, real miracles, signs and wonders, Jesus says. They're going to be real. If it's a healing, there actually will be a healing, but it will be counterfeit. It'll be real because that person will actually be healed. It'll be counterfeit because then the message will not be come to Christ in humility and repentance and trust in Jesus. The message will be go believe something else. Go somewhere else. Put your faith elsewhere. Now, why would God permit this? There's, there's two reasons given to us in Scripture. The first is found in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. find that little book here second thessalonians chapter 2 verse starting at verse 8 remember jesus christ risen from the dead no that's not correct perhaps three Perhaps, oh, just talked amongst yourselves. <laughs> okay, Second, Tim, Second Thessalonians, not Second Timothy. I was in Second Timothy. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end, bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The lawless one whose coming is in accord with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged. That's troubling to many. It's troubling to many people to think that God would send a deluding influence. It doesn't match our expectations, but he's God. We're not. He is who he is. He's not who we want him to be. Because people have rejected the truth, the time is going to come when God says, you want a lie? You want deception? Okay, here you go. And they're responsible for believing it. Why? Because he's given us the word. He's given us the word. And the person who says, oh, I saw that, I know that it's true, can look at scripture and say, and the word says it's not true, and what will they believe? They won't believe the scripture, they'll believe their experience. The second reason God will 
permit Satan to empower false miracles is as a test of those who claim to love him. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. There, Yahweh says that if a false prophet arises and gives you an actual miracle and then says, come away and worship another God, you are not to follow him. You are not to go with him. That false prophet is there because God is testing his people. Those who say that they love the Lord, prove it by obeying his word. And when the false prophet steps up and does a miracle, and then the person says, I'll go with the miracles, they don't love God. I know men and women today who I think are so focused on experiences that they would follow any teacher who would deliver a miracle. They say they love the Lord, they go to church, they sing Christian songs. But if they were at a place where, say, there was an Iraqi war vet and he'd, he'd lost an arm in battle, and somebody came up and laid, laid hands on him, and that arm was restored, and then he said this was done in the name of Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, they would convert. I believe that. Because they're chasing the experience. They're chasing the miracle. Linda and I had a woman stand in our driveway a number of years ago now, telling us that if she had to know God according to a book, she didn't want to know him. She wanted the experience. She's the one the devil is going to come for. So I want to remind you of this, beloved. God does not lie. He does not repent, and he does not have any regrets. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, the eternal one of Israel will not lie or have regret. I kind of discovered that this week. I, I learned something every week. Every week I come across something that grabs my heart and grabs my imagination. And I knew that God did not lie and I knew that God does not repent, but I've never seen that before, that God does not regret. As he saved you by his grace through Jesus Christ, he doesn't regret it. You look at your life, you think about your life and what you failed to do, the, things, the sins you've committed and the opportunities you've given away, and you think he's nuts. He saved me, but what a waste of time. He doesn't regret saving you. Not in the least. And let me remind you, too, that Satan does not work through power but through deception. He has no power of his own. He only has his voice. He only has his voice. He can only lie. He didn't change the fruit with Eve. He didn't hand it to her. He didn't pluck it. He didn't wash it. He just talked. But he's a really good talker. And so demonic encounters are always truth encounters, not power encounters. Well, what protection do we have? The Lord Jesus tells us in verse 25, he says, Behold, I have told you in advance. I have told you in advance. Every English translation has some form of in advance. Your Bible might say uh, from the beginning, or I've told you beforehand, or I told you before. Those phrases are not found in the Greek text. The Greek verb itself makes it clear that he has told us once and for all. And so they add in advance or beforehand to really emphasize that. The sense is 
Jesus saying, behold, I have told you, and so I don't need to tell you again, do I? And he doesn't. He's told us in scripture. He doesn't tell us through new prophets. He doesn't tell us through new voices. He doesn't repeat it for every generation. It's in the word. The devil's aim is to deceive us. He's going to try to do that by sending out false Christs and prophets. But Jesus tells us ahead of time, this is going to happen so that we can be diligent and we can watch. False Christs will arise and they will trick the people of the world. Those deluded people will tell believers that Jesus has appeared. He's out in the wilderness. He's in the Rocky Mountains somewhere. He's just hanging out. Or he's, he's in some upstairs flat in New York City and he's just living quietly. He's just waiting for the moment when he unveils himself to the world and he announces himself to the world. This has been going on for a long time. Anne Lee was the founder of the Shaker movement. She believed herself to be the female representation of God on earth. George Baker was known as Father Divine. He claimed to be God. Sun, Sun Myung Moon, known as Reverend Moon, believed that he was the second coming of Christ, although I'll give him this, he didn't think he was Jesus, just the Christ. Claude Vorlahan believed that he was the Messiah and that his father was an extraterrestrial named Yahweh. Henry Cristo of Brazil, Ante Pavlicic of Croatia, Alan David Miller of Australia, they all believed themselves to be Jesus Christ. They all gained followings. Jesus said, don't believe them. No one should have ever believed these deluded blasphemies. They should have believed the Lord. Now, some of these people make these claims because they're charlatans and they're trying to bilk people out of their money. Others are really deluded, which makes them pitiful but not reliable. Pitiful but not reliable. We, see, we feel sorry for them sometimes. We should feel sorry for them. But that doesn't mean we should believe them. So when somebody says that Jesus is here on earth now, they're a liar. And we need to simply say, no, you're wrong. You're lying. And what will our world say? Well, don't you think you should at least go look? No. Why not? Because my Lord tells me not to bother. A number of years ago, uh, I got a call from the chaplain at Tyson, the pork plant in Madison. And once a year, they did a pastor's tour. And I was invited because a church member worked there. I was invited to go on this pastor's tour of the plant. So I went down, and uh, we had breakfast, and then we went on a tour. And then they drew names out of a hat, and somebody won a 10-pound pork loin. And I won the 10-pound pork loin. And it was wrapped up in that really thick, heavy plastic. So I threw it in the back of my van and I drove home. And by the time I got to the office, I forgot it was there. Oh. It was summer. So two or three days go by and I open up the back of the, the truck and here it is. And you know, it looked okay. The looks are deceiving. I didn't need to open it. To know I didn't want to open it. When Jesus says, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. 
Just don't believe him. Don't go look. Deceivers often become angry when, they're, when their deceit is challenged. And I, I, there are probably a lot of reasons for that. I, I believe that it's because they have no true faith. See, true faith is always a gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's always in Jesus Christ. Always. What they have is human confidence, but that's, that makes it very delicate and very fragile. And their doctrines are delicate and fragile. If I stand here and preach the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ and every one of you gets up and walks out the door and shakes your head and says you're wrong, it would break my heart, but it wouldn't shift my faith an ounce. I know that Jesus is Lord. That's not because I'm really smart. That's because the Holy Spirit has given me a faith that's simply unshakable. But unbelievers don't have that, and people with false teachings don't have that. They try and hang on to what they can, and they need you to agree with them. And if you don't agree with them, it rocks their world. A woman once gave me a a very unique and highly inaccurate interpretation of the dove that Noah sent out from the ark. And I won't bother you with the bizarre story she told. When she finished, I simply said to her, and I said it just like this, but is that true? And her face was filled with rage because she knew it wasn't true and because she had a desperate need for other people to agree with her in order for her to to try and hang on to it because she knew it was wrong. She, She knew that it was that fragile. She's walking around with a soap bubble in her palm and she blames you if you breathe on it and it pops. But you can't destroy the truth. So, beloved, we we should not coddle false beliefs. We should challenge them. We should expose them. We should drain the abscess. We should pull the splinter. The person who believes that thing has one hope, and that is that somebody who knows the truth, who knows Jesus Christ, will kindly and gently and clearly tell them the truth. The people who say, oh, okay, well, that's nice, do them no favors. So how can we be sure of what we believe? We say we have unshakable confidence. How can we have that? That's the challenge that comes from the world. We challenge their beliefs, and what do they do? They turn around and say, well, your beliefs are just the same. And I would say, no, they're not. They're not anything the same. I didn't determine my beliefs. The scriptures determine my beliefs. I have not held on to this book for the past 40-some years because of my strength. I've held on to it because it's true, and the Spirit of God has given me faith in it. I've had my understanding clarified as I've studied. It's such a remarkable thing to be in my position to spend decades studying the Word, clarifying doctrines, clarifying understandings, meet somebody that I've never met before, and we begin sharing, and we've come to the same conclusions. It's not because we both read the same commentary and said, oh, okay, I'll believe that. It's because we're studying the same truth. So our confidence is not like their confidence. The word of God is a a foundation of solid rock. It doesn't shift. It doesn't change. 
So how can we be sure that what we believe about the Lord's second coming is true? Well, it's because Jesus himself describes it. So the person who says, well, how do you know he's not out in the wilderness? How do you know he's not living in a cabin somewhere in the Rocky Mountains? How do you know he's not living in Chicago somewhere in the inner city? Well, because Jesus tells us what it will be like when he returns. Verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, he doesn't mean that lightning always goes from east to west. We know that he's not saying that. What he's saying is that lightning is not subtle. Lightning can be seen. We are about 90 miles from here as the crow flies to Omaha. And if you get into a clear area in Norfolk and there's thunderheads at Omaha, you can see the lightning up there. You can see lightning for at least, 100, at least 90 miles, maybe 100 miles, maybe a little bit more, depending on how high it is in the cloud. So I, I, because I'm like this, I looked it up, and if you put the storm in Omaha, it can be seen for a 90-mile circle, and there's 1.9 million people who live within 90 miles of Omaha. That means potentially if there's a lightning strike up in the clouds, 1.9 million people see it. And because of the speed of light, we see it at the same second. It takes 1.3, no, it takes 0.13 seconds for light to go around the world. It's like 0.65 milliseconds for light to travel 90 miles, which means we all see it at the same moment. If you're on the phone to somebody in, in Lincoln and we're both looking at Omaha, you're going to see the lightning at the same time they do. That's what Jesus says his coming is going to be like. It's going to be like a lightning flash that everybody around the world sees. Nobody will be able to deny it. It'll be so obvious it'll stand out like a sore thumb. The imagery of vultures and corpses is, is exactly the same picture. The distance is much less, but the idea is the same. If you're out driving in, in farm country and you stop and look, Dakota was raised on a farm, you can see vultures two or three miles away circling if the air is clear. And everybody within that two or three mile circle can see the vultures, and we know what vultures mean, don't we? So Jesus is saying, look, when I return, it'll be obvious. It'll be evident. People will know what it means. The, the last several weeks I've been quoting from Revelation 19 because it fits. And I'll quote it again. John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
<coughs> so this is John. John says, I saw this. I saw this vision. I see this taking place. Is John like the crazy old guy who's standing in a park just staring into space? He says in verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. So the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies see Jesus return. They know who he is and they know why he's come back. And they say, it's time to put Psalm 2 into action. Let us cast their fetters from us. Let us break the chains of God. And he who sits in the heaven laughs at them. So there's nothing secret about Jesus' return. There's nothing hidden or subtle about it. It's going to be as obvious as a bolt of lightning. Its meaning will be as clear as circling vultures. It will be as subtle as an earthquake, as timid as a tidal wave. The world will see him, know him, try to defeat him in battle, and be defeated by him. And nobody will mistake what's taking place. This is such a central idea to scripture and to the gospel and to the book of Revelation that John uses it in his introduction to the book. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Behold, Jesus is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. So as we bring this home to us then, the, the time of the Great Tribulation will be a time of unprecedented chaos and confusion. I don't think that we can comprehend just how awful it's going to be. We have the same chaos and confusion today, just not with the same intensity. We still have people declaring there are false Christs today. We still have false prophets flooding around today. And the answer for them is the same as the answer for us. God has spoken in his word. And we are to compare and test everything by the scriptures, by God's breathed out word, which is inerrant, infallible, sufficient, completely authoritative. So your peace today is completely dependent on how well you know and how much you trust the scriptures. The devil is a deceiver. He is the father of lies. He comes to you constantly with lies. And if you don't know the scriptures, you don't have a way of defeating that. You don't have an answer for that. God is always true. He cannot lie. And his word is just like him. It's always true and it never lies. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The devil is actively trying to trouble you today. He's trying to trouble you today. He's trying to get you to be shaky on your feet. He's trying to confuse your environment. He's trying to shake you. He sends false Christs into the world, false prophets into the world. And they've pretty much successfully obscured the gospel in the world. As I said earlier, we will never have the opportunity to share Christ in a pristine environment. We're always going into an, an environment that has been contaminated by lies and untruths. What we want to do is go in with the gospel as medicine, like a surgeon going into an operating room. 
that's been cleansed and sterilized and everybody who goes in there is scrubbed and they've put on the, the cleanest possible clothing and everything is tightly controlled. But the truth is we're going out like soldiers on a battlefield and we're applying bandages over wounds that are filthy. We're just doing what we can. And the truth is, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit taking the clarity of the gospel and going through that confusion, nobody would hear. Much less understand and believe. They wouldn't even hear it. It takes the power of God. And so we preach Christ in a world full of spiritual debris. We have to be, we have to be aware of our own culpability and our own vulnerability to false teachings can stick to us like lint to a sweater. And at any time, we can go to the scripture and go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I thought I was right about that, and it turns out that I'm wrong about that. We have to remain teachable. So let's strive to increase our knowledge of the word. Let's strive to increase our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus and to obey him in every way. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your kindness to us as we come now to sing about Jesus who is faithful and true. Lord, let us rejoice in him. Let us rejoice in the, the great privilege that we have of being his, being called by his name. We thank you, Lord, in your precious name.